Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Monday, September 12th. We begin with the CPC leadership race where Pierre Polyev won the top seat over the weekend with close to 70% of the vote. We'll break down the result and discuss what the future holds for the party with Tim Powers, political commentator and chairman of Summa Strategies. Heading back to the office can be stressful for those who have worked remotely throughout the pandemic. Our Dave McIver looks for some strategies to help ease the transition, kicking off our week-long back-to-work series. Is it possible to sniff out Parkinson's disease before an official diagnosis? We catch up with Dr. Ted Jablonski, who brings us details on a new study based on a UK woman's claim that she can smell Parkinson's disease. And finally, it's another edition of Motivational Monday, a chance to get you motivated today and beyond. This time out, we meet Laura Chung, author, energy healer, and meditation instructor. Laura shares with us her knowledge of manifestation, the ability to bring your dreams and desires into the real world. Pierre Polyev won the leadership over the weekend. What does Pierre Polyev need to do now to unite the federal conservative party and challenge the liberal government in the next election? Joining us to talk about it is Tim Powers, political commentator and chairman of Sama Strategies. Good morning, Tim. Thanks for being with us. Good to be with you. And just as we're speaking, Pierre Polyev is addressing his caucus for the first time. So a lot's happening this morning on that front. Very much so. It's all fast and furious now. It didn't seem like it was terribly much of a surprise. I mean, all the polls were pointing towards him. It, was the vote even close? It really wasn't, was it? No, I think he got, what was it, 68.2% of the points and over 70% of the uh, the, the total vote. Uh, Mr. Sharif is second in total points, and he was at 16%. So, you know, a 52% tidge point win in terms of points for Pierre Polyev. Uh, for him, uh, he'll be delighted with that. Um, likely most of the Conservative caucus who are supporting him will be delighted with that because it should do away with uh, unity questions in the early days because when his predecessors, Mr. Shearer and Mr. O'Toole won. There were lengthy ballot processes. There were divisions. A comprehensive win like that, at least as he starts, gives Pierre Polyev uh, the opportunity to uh, to uh, start with uh, a sense that his party is fully on side with, uh, with what he uh, wants to offer to Canadians. You're mentioning, yes, maybe uh, you're quashing some of that division within the party. What about across the nation? A nation divided and a nation with uh, certain ideas of what conservatism uh, is and maybe should be or has changed into, is Pierre Polyev the guy that can you know, turn some heads and get people to change their minds about conservatism? Yeah, that's that's an excellent question, and you know we're not going to know the answer of that uh, to that for for quite a while. Look, I think Polyev would say the success of his campaign came from connecting at least with those who identified as themselves as conservatives and voted in this leadership race around yes, some anger and frustration over Justin Trudeau, uh, but equally a number of younger Canadians, and in this case, who decide to become conservatives, who have a lot of economic concerns. I think if Polyev is going to be successful with more Canadians, he needs to focus on the the economic messages and stay away from some of the things that have gotten him in trouble in the fa- in the past. You know, canoodling with the convoyers, as I like to say yeah. here, or some of the um, you know the more gimmicky statements and arguably challenging statements around cryptocurrency and uh, and firing the governor of the Bank of Canada. That stuff, you know, can play well as it did for him in a leadership race and freedom and gatekeepers and all of those things. Um, he's going to have to graduate, if you will, to taking that 
effective language, at least for those who voted for him, and turn it into some kind of policy option for Canadians. And I, you know, I think he seems to possess the confidence that he can do it, and he's demonstrated, I think, uh, at least to his political opponents, he shouldn't be underestimated. Because again, some firsts in this leadership campaign, right, for political parties, 675,000 Canadians joined uh, the Conservative Party. So there's some appetite out there for Mm. some kind of change. And he did have massive rallies. Uh, So people were showing an interest in him. So the Pierre Polyev that many of us have known in Parliament as the the nasty elbows up guy uh, is perhaps what uh, some Canadians aren't seeing and may never see uh, if he continues to find this appeal with a broader audience. I mean, as you said, too, he, he he has the he believes in himself. Let's just say that. Right. He clearly does. So is he the guy to, to defeat the liberals finally? I mean, it's a long way until we actually have an election more than likely. Yeah, well, that's look, he got the same level of support. In fact, a little bit better than Stephen Harper did in 2004. So conservatives clearly think he's that guy. Now, public opinion polls, we run the uh, research firm Abacus Data. Uh, he's very popular among conservatives. Again, no shock there. You saw that in the numbers that uh, that came out on the weekend. With Most Canadians still don't know him. Uh, I think in our last survey, I think 51% didn't really know him or have an opinion of him. Those who did, who weren't just conservatives, had a very mixed opinion of him. Uh, so if you're the Liberals, uh, when the time is right, because we're living in this exceptionally historic moment, of course, with the passing of the Queen, I think we'll get back into the nasty of politics after her state funeral next week. But I think both Pierre Polyev and the Liberals are going to begin the definition process of who he is to connect with that 51% of Canadians who don't really know who he is at the moment. And uh, uh, both sides will be laying out their greatest hits to try and capture the audience on, on all of that. And that will shape whether in the early days, whether he can be uh, successful enough as a conservative leader to be conservative prime minister. Was that the issue, do you believe, Tim, with, for example, an Aaron O'Toole that he did not get to know and maybe perhaps because of the pandemic pandemic hits as soon as he rolls into an office he's going to tour the country and put the brakes on that was that the issue with Aaron O'Toole or was that a different issue do you think Aaron O'Toole had to worry about being constantly murdered from within inside his party because there were divisions uh and same with Andrew Scheer to a large degree you remember when both lost the election it was only a matter of seconds before conservatives first were calling for um, them both to step down. Polyev doesn't have to worry about that right now. Well, that may change if he makes missteps or the broader public um, doesn't connect with him. But right now, you know, he doesn't have to worry about internal missteps. Your specific question or internal um, confusion and dis, uh, disenchantment. To your question about O'Toole, I think there are other challenges there. I think the brand issue uh, of O'Toole running to the right and then maybe for the Conservative caucus moving too far to the center or left. Polyev has already said he's not going to do any grand kind of pivot, but the electoral math, as we have known it, would suggest he's got to perhaps have a different type of messaging and connecting with that 5 or 6% of the rest of the country he's going to need if he wants to be Prime Minister. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Tim, and, and sharing your perspective. Appreciate it. Good to be with you guys. Thank Thanks so you. Much. Tim Powers, Bye. chairman of Summa Strategies, leading Canadian public affairs consulting firm. You can go online at Summa, S-U-M-M-A, summastrategies.ca.
Well, as people return to the office in greater numbers, what are some of the challenges employers and employees are facing and what can be done to ease the transition? Our on-air contributor Dave McIver gets some answers for us. Over the last two and a half years, many people have moved from their office to their home office, adapting to the many challenges of navigating the work they do through a global pandemic. As employees start returning to the office in greater numbers, what are some of the challenges that they are facing? Dr. Duigu Gullerson is an assistant professor of human resources management at York University. She explains. The research published within the last year uh, shows us that transmission of COVID is still a big concern for employees. Uh, especially for those who had experienced COVID from the first hand or or in their closed networks. Um, Another important challenge or concern for employees is actually the loss of autonomy. So right now, um, employees have some degree of freedom while working from home uh, on how they manage their time, how they manage their work, or how they attend to family responsibilities. So return to work might mean giving up such freedom. So um, that's why it might be one of the concerns. Um, But I think an important one is the stress that comes with readjustment. So um, like it took employees for months or or even years uh, to get used to working from home. And um, many of them have just found their ways that work for them. And and they learned how to function well, how to feel comfortable working from home. And now for getting all of these newly required habits and routines and developing new strategies might be be stressful for them. Uh, We don't talk about this much, but health research also anticipates that Uh, Regaining tolerance to the physical demands is is a big concern for employees. So, for example, like dealing with the the demands of long commutes or using uncomfortable office furniture, office chair, um, inability to lie down when they needed a quick rest or um, getting used to the the noise around them can be all additional sources of anxiety for, for people returning to the office. While employees are facing some challenges, Annie Dormuth, the Alberta Provincial Affairs Director for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, says the employers are facing challenges as well. For those for those businesses that uh, primarily operate on office, I would have to say work-life. Uh, definitely hearing from a lot of business owners, um, more and more looking toward that hybrid approach of uh, working from home and uh, also, you know, maybe coming into the office one or two times a week simply to maintain those uh, team working connections and that kind of atmosphere. Are we seeing pros and cons to that hybrid model? Well, definitely some pros and cons. I mean, uh, a lot of business owners report that um, simply for recruitment, a lot of uh, employees or prospective employees are looking for, again, that flexibility of work from home and the office type of style. Um, those businesses that went completely work from home, um, they do report that, you know, there is that loss of kind of team building uh, connection that a lot of uh, employees do want to maintain that. And that is why a lot of them are looking toward that hybrid model. While Dr. Gullerson hasn't come across any research in how this affects age demographics, she does say there are different groups that could be impacted by the stresses in returning to work. The research tells us that women 
Um, employees with unresolved childcare responsibilities, um, employees living in multi-generational households, and employees with disabilities are quite reluctant to, to going back to offices. Um, it is ironic indeed, because uh, some of these groups like women or like caregiving employees, these groups were also the ones who reported negative consequences of working from home. So this tells me that maybe regardless of the place of work, it might be the, the swift and big changes that could affect the, the attitudes of these equity-seeking groups. So what can be done to ease the stresses of the workers who are returning to the office on a more regular basis? So to ease the process, I think employers might perhaps can provide a clear and a, and a positive picture of what, what the work life will be like after return to the office. Um, they can revise their like work-friendly policies to, to address those concerns related to the return to office. And um, our research highlights the importance of involvement in decisions, asking employees input about, about the decisions. And, and another, uh, I think, think that can be done to find a middle ground is to provide flexible working arrangements still. For example, like communicating the organization's needs and, you know, why they need the, the employees in person, but leaving the decision up to the employees can be a healthy way to, to move forward, I think. And this way, employees show up when they need to, but they don't feel they are enforced. They, you know, they they buy in and they understand the reasons. Whether it be full-time back in the office or more of a hybrid model, communication between the employer and the employee will be key. For 770 CHQR, I'm Dave McIver. Parkinson's is the fastest growing neurological disorder in the world. It's a progressive, degenerative, full body brain disorder of which there's no definitive cause, no cure, no definitive test aside from an autopsy, if you are to know that you have it. Well, recently, scientists studied a Scottish woman who can smell Parkinson's. To talk about it, we're joined by our on-call family physician, Dr. Ted Jablonski. Good morning to you, Dr. J. Good morning. A strange story, but true. What did you take away from the research paper that was published about this woman that could smell Parkinson's, but also the test they've now come up with as a result? Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating, isn't it? That uh, that uh, somebody could actually have that skill to smell a disease. Now, we've known that animals, particularly dogs, mm -hmm. have the ability to uh, sniff uh, people and and find out, say, in somebody who's going to have a seizure, they can see it coming. Or if a diabetic is having a very high sugar, the dogs can smell. So it's not completely unheard of that that smell might tip us off to different things. But the notion of diagnosing a neurologic problem by smell is really, really quite interesting. And I think the, the broader implication of this is that if we can have diseases where we realize that it changes something on our skin surface and that changes the smell, if we can identify what chemicals or what molecules actually do that, those might be very helpful in trying to decipher uh, a or make a test and then uh, say a positive negative moving forward, whether this be Parkinson's or MS or any other neurologic or perhaps even a bigger picture would be the, in the cancer world mm -hmm. where early diagnosis is so, so crucial. If we can move it into that world, now we've got something really, really big. Yeah, and if nothing else, Dr. J, perhaps if you, if, if you even have some kind of a question that you might have noticed something different, that's the key. That is the you know, reminder to get to your doctor. 
Yes, absolutely. Always, no, ma- no matter what. Um, it'll be interesting to see how quickly this test comes to market. Mm-hmm. It sounds like this woman, um, her observation of the, par- uh, the Parkinson's was quite a number of years ago. So it's taken mm-hmm. quite a number of years to even sort out what exactly was at the root of the smell and then after that to try to sort out a test. So it's been a very slow, progressive uh, sort of strategy as I read it and still in the UK. So it may be years and years before it ever gets global or gets to North America. But even the notion that it's happening and we're moving forward is, is quite interesting, quite fascinating. Yeah, it is. So so when you read into it, is it something that was on the skin or, or something that was being released through the skin? What, what was yeah. she smelling? Yes, it was sort of in the skin oil. Um, so I guess Parkinson patients uh, make up a slightly different, different composition in their skin oil. Uh, and if they, so it's a very sophisticated thing to look at uh, the oil on the skin and, and decipher what chemicals are there. And I guess the patterning in a Parkinson patient is quite different than the patterning in a person who does not have Parkinson's. And that's what she was smelling. Mm. <laughs> yeah, super smeller. Yeah. Uh, but we can also have, you know, uh, machines or, or like mass spectrometers sure. that can actually decipher the chemical blend that gives a certain mm. smell. And that's really where the key to this is. It's not that we can have to try to find other people like this Scottish woman all over the world and, you know, get jet set them all over to smell people. We need to uh, basically mimic make that same thing by understanding what's the chemical she's smelling and then figure out a test to capture that chemical. Anything we can do to, you know, battle something like Parkinson's, mm-hmm. and a new tool, an interesting tool. We appreciate the update, Dr. J. You betcha. Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Manifestation is a wildly popular concept emphasizing the strength of personal power and bringing one's deepest desires into the realm of the physical. Put simply, what you dream, you can achieve. The hashtag, hashtag manifestation, has more than 5 million posts on Instagram and more than 8.1 billion views on TikTok. In fact, searches for manifesting went up 400% between 2020 and 2021. How does this apply to you? Well, we have author Laura Chung on the line, a New York-based energy healer and meditation teacher. This after being dissatisfied with a traditionally successful life. She quit her corporate job to take this on. Good morning to you, Laura. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So a little bit about your background. You left your previous life behind to take this on. Can you tell us about what you were doing and what the spark was for change in your life? Yeah, so I used to work in private equity in New York City, uh, which is in in the finance industry. And I know this is like totally first world problems, but um, everybody that I worked with were pretty well off. And I would say like the 1%, everybody had their resources and all of their financial needs met. But I noticed that nobody was really happy. And um, growing up, I was told like money makes you happy and money is like the solution to all your problems. So, and me myself, like I was just working because I wanted the money, but wasn't, it wasn't fulfilling. So I wanted to really discover what what that was like what is it that makes people happy what what will it be to make me happy and so I started traveling the world and meeting people who really were living a wealthy life but wealth beyond just money but living in alignment with their purpose living in community doing what they loved and um 
Yeah, and I'm just sharing some of my observations with you in this book. And from finance to author, your book is called How to Manifest, Make Your Dreams a Reality in 40 Days. Can you, for you, how do you define manifest or manifestation? Sure. So there's a dictionary definition of manifestation and everybody's going to define it in their own way. But for me personally, it is co-creating into the physical form from my imagination and my ideas. So can anybody do this, Laura? How how does it work? What's the process? Yeah. So one thing to know is that we're manifesting all the time. We're manifesting right now based on our beliefs and our actions and our decisions. So we are constantly co-creating. We're constantly manifesting. But what we're talking about here is manifesting something different and something that you desire and what that's going to take is change and um that's the whole process that i introduce in my book do you need laura a specific goal to be manifesting you said we're doing it all the time what do you mean by that well we're manifesting every moment of our lives because we are creating our reality based on our beliefs and our decisions and how we act so um when you want to manifest something it's usually like somebody wants to experience something different so people will want to manifest a better job or manifest a big move or money or their soulmate so it's different from what they're currently experiencing so what that's going to take is then a shift and a change in your behaviors and your belief systems i would assume and correct me if i'm wrong laura that when you're manifesting something, it's not going to be, oh, I want a bigger house in the next day. All of a sudden, someone hands you the mm-hmm. keys that this is a process and uh, maybe, you know, take some steps. Mm-hmm. How can I tell if my manifestation is working? How can I tell that I'm starting to make some baby steps toward getting uh, to my end goal? Yeah, so I think um, the reason why this is like an inner work experience is because you have to define it for yourself. I just lay out the process. So just think about right now, like, what is it that you specifically want to manifest? Um, And I'm sure there's something there. Um, And like wealth, for example, wealth is such a big term, but everybody wants to be wealthy. But what does it actually mean to you? Because for some people, wealth means I want to have more community. I want to be healthy. I want to feel vitality and energy. And for other people, it literally means money. And so the way in which you know that it's happening is that it starts to show up in your physical life and you start feeling that feeling that you've defined and you have to do that um you have to do that self-reflection work for yourself there are an awful lot of manifestation techniques out there in your opinion what's the most effective way to go about it uh doing the inner work and healing and it's the it's the probably the thing that most people resist doing the most because it has to be um you have to be very open and vulnerable and accept that the way you're doing things now isn't going to get what you want um and we haven't been taught how to do this kind of work because we've always just um as a as a collective as a society like brushed past our feelings we don't even know how to grieve You know, we don't even know how to communicate. We were just not taught these things in school. Mm -hmm. So 
the I would say the quickest and by by saying quick I don't mean it's easy but the straight pathway to manifesting is to unblock your limiting beliefs and the stories that you picked up throughout your life um, and doing that inner work. Laura, where can we get the book? Um, wherever books are sold. You can also um, go on my website, laurakchung.com. Good stuff. We'll be checking that out. Thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. That is Laura Chung, New York-based energy healer, meditation teacher, and author of the new book, How to Manifest, Make Your Dreams a Reality in 40 Days. Brilliant. I, I'm a big believer in manifestation, but I don't. I never really even kind of thought about it that way. I just have always, um, I take, I make sure that I picture myself in whatever it is that I want to do. Like I literally, if I wanted to buy a new home, I would picture what that, yes. that home looks like. I would picture myself unlocking and opening the door handle, pulling the door open and walking through the door into my new house, that sort of thing. Okay. You yeah. know, like really it just envisioning what I want or what I need and which I guess technically is manifestation. Yeah, well, but I think that there is this maybe pie in the sky thought when it comes to manifestation in that, you know, they say that luck is created. I think that your manifestation, your thoughts turn to your attention and that attention has to turn to action. For example, if you decided, hey, I'd like to be able to bench press 200 pounds and never go to the gym, you have to, you have to help yourself. So I think of it as, as kind of a, a blueprint, your manifestation. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do to get on that path? What are you going to do to get yourself closer to it versus just trying to pull it out of thin air? But athletes, and I believe that, the, you know, she referenced this, athletes all the time use manifestation 100%. to be to give that best javelin toss or mm-hmm. you know uh, win that lap in the pool you've you've seen yourself on the winner's yeah. podium call it what you want yeah. it's it's envisioning and picturing what you want how you get there and then actually achieving it and it, you you can if you can really make that image crystal clear yeah. in your head you can make it happen